Thanks, guys, for all of that. Hi, Journey. How are you? Great to see all of you here today. Wasn't it a cool deal to have Sarah Groves here last weekend for Mother's Day? Yeah, that was a terrific Mother's Day. Many thanks to Brandon for pursuing her, like, for years. He had to pursue her to get here here on Mother's Day. We really like her. I'll uh, bet you'll see her back here again uh, sometime. Well, our family came to the 11 o'clock last weekend for Mother's Day, heard Sarah. We were sitting right over there. And one of our kids was so moved at the end of last weekend, he said, hey, Dad, that was really great, but how about we get David Crowder for Father's Day? Right? I was like, yeah, let's work on that. I sort of, I sort of laughed, and then uh, I said, well, actually, son, I, I'm preaching on Father's Day. And all of a sudden, he just wasn't all that enthused anymore. He, he was like, oh, okay. And I know exactly what that oh, okay means. It means that in his head, he's going like, Oh, that'll be a banner weekend, right? Like David Crowder, dad. David Crowder, dad. Ah, tough to please him, isn't it? If you've been around here for the last block of weekends, we've been making our way through this series called Covenant and Kingdom. Many, many, many of us have been reading along through this book by the same title by our friend Mike Breen. We've been pressing into what it is and what it means to live in covenant relationship first and foremost with God and then out of that covenant oneness, what it looks like for us to live on the kingdom mission of God. I hope and I pray that you've been as moved and challenged and stirred as I've been through our reading, perhaps through these weekends, and then God just speaking to you through this study uh, day in and day out. Today we're going to bring covenant and kingdom in for a landing. We're going to wrap it up, and here's how we're going to wrap it up. I'm going to tell you the end right here at the beginning. I'm going to teach through a couple of texts of scripture. I'm going to talk about what those texts mean for us. And then at the end of our time together, I'm going to invite anyone who is so compelled to actually get up out of your seat, come forward right down front here, and many from our pastoral team are going to be down here to pray a prayer of commissioning over you That is, every single one of us lives our lives, every single moment of every single day, that you would be fully about representing King Jesus, that you would be fully about extending his kingdom, that you would be bringing his forgiveness and his healing and his restoration and his deliverance wherever and whenever you go. Our desire is to commission anyone and everyone who so desires today to really the covenant and kingdom life as we wrap up our time today. So invite you to be thinking about that even now. Many of you are thinking about that right now, an invitation to the front, and that's caused great panic to wash over some of you. I see it in your faces, and I just want to speak right to your panic. First of all, I'm going to tell you that coming down here isn't mandatory. It's not expected. You get to decide. And I want to say that if you decide not to come down front when we get to that, it does not mean anything about your relationship with Christ. I promise you, that in this church, people around you are not taking note of whether or not you go down and say, oh, he didn't go down. I wonder what that means. Nobody is doing that. Nobody is assigning meaning to that, whether you come down or don't come down. It's simply an invitation for you to respond if you choose, if that's how God is working in your heart today. Before we get to that, though, I want us to look together at Luke chapter 3 first. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. This is actually the baptism scene of Jesus Christ. 
This is the day that Jesus Christ himself was baptized, and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in this scene on that day. One day, when the crowds were being baptized, that's interesting, there's crowds being baptized. You can sort of see it in your mind's eye, can't you? Crowds queuing up to be baptized. Jesus himself was also baptized on that day, right with the crowds. And so you sort of picture this scene. Jesus is dunked under the water. He's going public with his faith. He comes out from being dunked. We assume he was dunked, right? It probably, why do you need a whole river if you're just gonna get sprinkled, right? You're like under the water, all the way under the water. He comes up out of the water, and as he was praying, the heavens opened up. So he comes out of the water and he says a prayer. And as he was praying, the heavens opened, And the Holy Spirit, in bodily form, descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Now this is the launch of really Jesus' public ministry. And his ministry really begins with this flourish of both covenant and kingdom doesn't it? They're equally in play. They're equally in view. They are one, and Jesus, out of this covenant oneness, is sent out on kingdom mission, kingdom assignment, on behalf of his Father. And what happens at this baptism scene, there's so much in play, but primarily what's in view is that the kingdom of God is breaking into the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is breaking in and breaking through to the kingdom of this world. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is primarily breaking through in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And it's like a once and for all breaking in. It isn't like it's going to break in for a little while and then leave. It's permanent. It's here to stay. The kingdom of God from that point on is always and forever breaking in and breaking through into the kingdom of this world. Because you see, up to this point in time, that point in time, the baptism scene, up to that point in time, there existed this sort of barrier between this world and the next world. But on Jesus' baptism day, the skies rip open, the barrier between this world and the next gets like torn down. Heaven touches earth perpetually in and through the person of Jesus Christ. It couldn't be any more clear. Skies tear, tangible, tangible manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming out of the heavens as a dove and the Holy Spirit rests on Jesus and doesn't leave him. There he is. God is establishing, see this everlasting link between heaven and earth, which means, get this, that everything you'd expect and experience in heaven is right now present and available in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Right here, right now. It isn't like a someday off there, maybe when, no. What you would expect and experience in heaven is widely available in and through the person of Jesus Christ. You might not have ever heard it put that way before, but it's something that you already know. For example, the forgiveness that we expect as we're greeted in heaven is experienced in and through the person of Jesus Christ, right here, right now. The healing that we expect in heaven that ensures there's no more disease, no more sickness, no more sadness can be found and experienced in and through the person of Jesus Christ, right here, right now. The eternal life that Christ's followers will experience in heaven is met in and through the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven breaks in to the kingdom of this earth in and through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate bringer of the future that we're all longing for. 
That future is touching the present through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the conduit of the kingdom of God. He's bringing to bear the realities of heaven, and that's astounding. And the experience of heaven, therefore, is hardwired into the experience of this earth. And the one through whom we make that encounter is the Son of God, one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ. Something else that'll make your head explode if you think about it too long is that on Jesus' baptism day, the Trinity is revealed right then and there to everybody, right at the launch, right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Some of you are going like, Trinity, what is that? I've kind of heard about that. The Trinity is this often misunderstood theological concept that God is three persons and yet he is just one God. And on Jesus' baptism day, the Trinity is on full display. The Father speaks, like right from heaven, right? God the Father speaks from heaven. What happens to the Son? He gets dunked, right? He gets baptized, if you'd rather use that word. And the Spirit descends like a dove. And God the Father says those amazing words. You are my dearly loved Son. You bring me great joy. And later on, Jesus says these words about himself, John 14, 6 and 7. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have actually seen him. Jesus sort of takes on the concept that there's many paths to God, doesn't he? He says, "Uh uh-uh, there aren't many paths to God. All religious systems of this world do not ever lead a person to God. He makes this radically exclusive truth claim saying, I'm it. I'm it. And then he says, as a matter of fact, I'm so it that I perfectly represent the Father. Any time then that you see Jesus, you're actually seeing into the heart of God the Father. Jesus represents God. And that's everything that it is to live the covenant and kingdom life. Covenant oneness, kingdom responsibility, kingdom assignment. And so Jesus, God's son, gives us a look at who God the Father really is, helping us therefore understand what the heart of God the Father is all about. And when we look at Jesus, we come to the understanding that God the Father longs for us to know restoration. Like real, true God-initiated, God-inspired restoration. Now, the world has a view of restoration, doesn't it? And God says, that isn't necessarily it. Real, authentic restoration is rooted and founded in God. At the heart of God, the Father is to know that we would know his touch of compassion, his touch of healing, his touch of forgiveness, his touch of deliverance from the shackles that hold us captive and everything that he has for us. Jesus gives us that kind of a look into the heart of God the Father. And we come to the end of all that and we go like, well that's all cool and that sounds wonderful, but so what? And unless we ask the so what question, it'll never change us, this reality, this truth will never change us and it won't ever change anyone else for that matter. So we have to move from understanding all that to this question, how then do we engage with that personally and practically? We can't just leave it in the theoretical. And the story of a guy named Saul, a guy named Saul who later becomes 
Paul and his radical conversion to faith in Jesus Christ, I think, gets us a long way down the road to answering that question. Let me set the story up a little for you. Saul, as he was called in that day, was an incredibly religious dude. He was incredibly religious. He had studied about God all of his life. He was esteemed by all other Jews for knowing and practicing God's law so incredibly well. He was highly successful. He held himself to the very highest standards of excellence in preserving the tradition of his Jewish ancestors. As a matter of fact, he was such a devout Jew that any other Jew who saw Saul walking by down the street would have declared without reserve, there goes a godly man. There goes a godly man. Man, people have been like, whoa, it's Saul. He is something else. And we pick up the story of Saul in Acts chapter 9, and here's the supposedly godly man, and you know what's on his breath? Murder. He's breathing murder. He's a supposedly godly, supposedly religious dude filled with hatred on this really self-righteous crusade and he's starting out on this journey to the city of Damascus. He's carrying with him these letters that will grant him blanket authority to arrest anyone even suspected of being a Christian either in the synagogue or in their homes both publicly and privately. He's granting, granted permission to go arrest anyone who's suspected of being a Christian. And Saul's effort to persecute and even kill Christians is not like impulsive. He didn't wake up one day and like, huh, that sounds like a fun thing to do today. It's planned. It's calculated. It is cold and intentional. And so you picture Saul probably kicking up dust as he's walking down that road. Now, I'll get th this. This will twist you up. We imagine Saul even praying prayers to Yahweh, to God, asking for God to bless his plans to kill and persecute Christians. Oh God, give me favor. Oh God, protect me as I seek to protect you. And we pick up the story in Acts chapter 9 starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath, murder on his breath. He was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Eager. It wasn't like he was just like thinking about it, like, yeah, maybe that'll happen. He's like excited to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. This is what they called Christians in the early part of Acts, followers of the way that he found there. These are disciples, these are followers of Jesus, these are Christians. He wanted to bring them, not just men, but men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains simply because they're following Jesus. Now get this, look what happens. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. Another place in Acts tells us that that light was brighter than any noonday Middle Eastern sun. You imagine how bright that is. And like this is really, really bright. Lots of lumens on his head, and he falls to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is a hilarious question. Who are you, Lord? Right? Who are you, Lord, Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the very one you were persecuting. Whoa. I am Jesus, the very one that you are persecuting. Get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you 
must do is really quite ironic, isn't it? Saul's this supposedly religious man on this crusade to arrest and eventually kill followers of Jesus Christ. The Lord blinds him so badly it causes him to fall on the ground. While Saul's on the ground, he answers the voice with, who are you, Lord? But somehow in all of that, he forgets who it is that the Lord really is. Who are you, Lord? And the answer, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're, you're persecuting. Like Saul, you, you know who this is. You know well who this is. Now that would have been quite a body blow to somebody who considered himself so religious, so righteous, so holy, so better than everyone else. And so here's this man, Saul, on a mission to defend God as if God needs Saul to defend him, right? And God really interrupts and strikes down and says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm the one you're persecuting And you see in that moment this incredibly humble identification that Jesus has with his people, that Jesus has with his church. And so it becomes really, really clear from that text that from Jesus' point of view, understand this, that if you hurt one of Christ's followers, you're actually hurting him. If you hurt one of Christ's followers, if you persecute one of Christ's followers, you're actually persecuting, hurting, causing pain to Jesus, this covenant connection is so deep. If something happens to one of his followers, if something happens to one who is on the way of Jesus, if something happens to one of his disciples, Jesus experiences it as if it's happening to him. The oneness covenant that exists is so deep, and nobody had understood this before. Nobody had seen this before. This was brand new information. And that's what covenant is. That's everything covenant is. Becoming one with the person with whom we are in covenant. God the Father expresses he is one with the Son on baptism day. Now Jesus expresses, I'm one with my disciples. I'm one with my followers. Whoa. And understand it from this Damascus Road experience, from that day forward, I'm going to call him Saul Paul because he got his name changed. Saul Paul, we'll just call him that, okay? Saul Paul is a completely different guy, unrecognizable. You wouldn't have known it was the same guy. What God did in him was so dramatic. It wasn't like Saul Paul just added a little Jesus on top, like whipped cream and a cherry, and now everything is lovely. He's a dramatically different, changed man. Scales fall from his eyes. He gets baptized himself in the city of Damascus, and then he sets out on this unbelievable journey with the Lord. It was probably about 13 years long of a journey, and on that journey, now Saul, who has become Paul, is serving the Lord the way God intends for him to be served. He's on missionary journeys, spreading the gospel, not just to the Jews, but now to Gentiles, and amazing things are happening, and unbelievably hard things are happening to Saul Paul. He's shipwrecked, he's beaten, he's receiving lashes numerous times, receiving 39 lashes. I've never had that happen to me, but I hear it's painful. You would imagine the same. And in those years, those roughly 13 years, something happens to Paul's understanding of this whole church deal. 
what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it's from that point forward, that 13-year journey, Paul begins to describe the church as a very, very, in a very unique way. Do you know what it is? Paul begins to call the church, it's a B word, the body of Jesus Christ. The body of Jesus Christ. And it seems really, really likely, doesn't it, that that understanding of the church of Jesus Christ as the body of Christ was rooted in Saul Paul's encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus on the day when Jesus revealed that the most stunning covenant exists between his disciples and him. When they're persecuted, he feels it. It's like they're somehow, someway, the very same body. That oneness covenant runs so deep that the only way Paul can think of to describe the church of Jesus Christ is the body of Christ. Whoa. Oneness. And Journey, what's happening in our valley and what's happening with our friends and our families and our neighbors and our classmates and our coworkers is that they are looking for the very touch of heaven. They are in search, they are seeking out the very touch of heaven. And get this, if all those people in our valley met Jesus, they would find heaven. If they met Jesus, they would hear words of forgiveness and they would be forgiven. If they met Jesus, they would experience his touch of healing. If they met Jesus, they would know what God's idea of restoration is and they would experience it. If they met Jesus, they would experience what it means and what it looks like and what it feels like to be delivered from the shackles of the stuff that holds us in chains. And so you see, if our friends and our families and our neighbors and our classmates and our coworkers, if they only met Jesus, they would experience all of that. They would experience the very touch of heaven. So how is it that they will do that? It's through us, church. It's through us. Through the body of Jesus Christ. Through him, presented to the world, through his covenant people. You and me, me and you. And if the people in our valley aren't experienced Jesus, experiencing Jesus Christ through us, then there's only one place for us to look. It's right in the mirror, and it's to ask this question, why is that? This is a problem. Why is that? If people aren't experiencing Jesus through us, why is that? It could get to this idea of covenant and kingdom, couldn't it? Because you see, every single thing that it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ is captured in those two words, covenant and kingdom. It starts at the beginning of scripture, it extends to this day, it goes from this day all the way to the very end of time. Covenant, you see, is all about relationship. Another word for covenant is relationship. Jesus desires a personal oneness relationship with you. And then out of that relationship comes kingdom responsibility. He has assignments. He's asking us to live into the very thing that you were created for. Don't ever settle for anything less. It's really about being with God in covenant relationship and doing what he's asking us to do. I hear from him 
and then I go do what he's asking me to do. And it isn't just you off by yourself in some corner, sitting in your quiet time chair, just sort of figuring it out with God all by yourself. It's about the body of Jesus Christ all in this together. We are the covenant community doing the very work of the king. And the work of the king is to save all that was lost in the beginning through the very people who lost it in the first place. The work of the king is the very same rescue mission that God's been on since the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. We are the covenant community of God who carry forth the mission of extending the kingdom of our father. It's covenant and kingdom it's relationship and responsibility, it's being and doing, it's invitation and challenge. Jesus is making invitations to us all the time and sometimes we just leave it at the invitation stage, don't we? It's like, oh nice, Jesus is asking me to do this thing. But challenge is supposed to accompany invitation, isn't it? Jesus is inviting you, he's telling you to do something, so the challenge comes when you ask the question, what does he want me to do with that? What am I going to do with that? Am I going to go walk that out or am I just going to sit here and let the invitation lie? It's about us being the community of Jesus Christ on the mission of Christ. The community of Jesus Christ on the mission of Christ. That's why Journey Church exists. To be on the mission of Jesus Christ together. We're in covenant relationship with Jesus. We represent the king. We extend his rule. And we bring... We bring every moment of every single day forgiveness and healing and restoration and deliverance wherever and whenever we go. God's design is that people would experience the future that is heaven in and through our lives. That's what it means for us to be the church. That's our calling. That's why we exist. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would. And I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads if you would. And would you just give yourself to the question, God, what is it that you're saying to me right now?